This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. A key tool in addressing the climate crisis is having an accurate picture of greenhouse gas emissions. New technology is making that possible, along with revealing other pollutants that affect individual and community health. We're mapping this image of pollution that has been invisible up until now. Those collecting the data hope it can be used to clean up our air and atmosphere for a more healthy and stable future. We can see who the biggest emitters are. We can see their ownership in a lot of cases. But most intriguingly to me, we can see who is producing cleaner and less clean. The data also makes plain the inequities faced by frontline communities who have long suffered the effects of harmful pollution. I mean, how well are we listening? How often are we listening to folks who are dealing with direct impacts of extraction? Over a 20-year period, methane is 80 times more harmful than carbon dioxide to the atmosphere that makes life possible on Earth. Yet many companies responsible for releasing methane into the sky often don't know how much is really being emitted. And methane is only one of a suite of harmful air pollutants that result from our dependence on burning fossil fuels. Now, research coalitions, citizen scientists, and activists are using a slate of new tools to detect and report emissions. They're also working to shine a light on how communities are affected by other deadly fossil fuel pollutants, like nitrogen dioxide and particulate matter. Such data will be an increasingly critical part of local regulation and hopefully bolster the accountability of international agreements to cut emissions. Davida Herzl is co-founder and CEO of Aclima, a company working on a new approach to diagnosing the health of our air and tracking climate change pollution at the local level. I actually founded Aclima over a decade ago because it was clear that there was a big gap in our understanding of two really critical features of air pollution and greenhouse gases. One is that although we're facing a global climate crisis right now, we actually don't have the measurement infrastructure to really know where those emissions are coming from. And two, we don't really understand who's being impacted by those emissions down to the block level, down to that really hyperlocal resolution. And there's been a big push and I think a demand. I think a lot of the citizen sensor, consumer sensor uh, devices and, and adoption, what that represents is demand for that local knowledge when you're trying to protect your family and yourself from these big sort of events, right? What we're really trying to do is to create the measurement and data infrastructure to not just respond to the short-term events, but to really understand over over long periods of time uh, and on an ongoing basis, really quantifying all pollution everywhere. We literally measure everything. So we measure PM and all the criteria pollutants. So basically all of the pollutants that are regulated by the United States EPA. We also measure all greenhouse gases. So we measure things like methane. It's an extremely powerful short-term greenhouse gas that's short-lived, but has very significant warming effects. And we're not doing enough to manage methane emissions. And then we also measure toxics. So all of the pollutants that are associated with petrochemical production and heavy industry, so benzene, toluene, ethylene, all the enes, and they tend to be associated with uh, things like cancer and really significant and acute health impacts. We measure all of this with a, with a proprietary and, and uh, specialized sensing technology that we've developed over many years that gets deployed on fleets of vehicles. And as those vehicles are driving through city streets, 
we're mapping this image of pollution that has been invisible up until now. And so we're really focused on finding those sources of emissions and where they intersect with people um, so that, you know, now policymakers and city governments and state governments and companies can really target their dollars on reducing those sources of emissions. So what what happens uh, with your data and then what ways do you make it accessible for people? Yeah. So under the United States Clean Air Act, there are specific requirements for how you measure air quality. But the technology that's being used for those kinds of measurements is very expensive, very difficult to deploy, and you only see, they only measure a few pollutants. And so where we really you know, invested significantly was in the science to enable really high quality data that could be used to target sometimes billions of dollars into big uh, emissions reductions projects. Um, so to give you an example of how our data gets used, one of our longstanding partners is the West Oakland Environmental Indicators Project, uh, which is led by an incredible uh, group of co-founders um, that have really been building out incredible capacity in using data to drive local policy solutions. And so here in California, they were the first community to actually have block-by-block data that we developed and and generated with them. And using that block-level data and other other kinds of data that they integrated into the analysis, they worked with the local regulator to develop a a transformational plan to reduce emissions across the community that had almost 100 different interventions based on that hyperlocal data. Everything from, you know, investing in uh, reducing bus idling and truck idling to really identify using the data to identify major um, opportunities for retrofits at the port. And so that has been, you know, really a model for how you can use data to shape climate action plans that improve the community, that reduce air pollution, and also make those communities better able to to not only, you know, address climate change, but actually use it as an opportunity to create jobs and bring in more more economic development. And of those hundred interventions, a third are in active implementation. And for people who aren't familiar with West Oakland, it's a neighborhood sandwiched between a a band of freeways and and one of the largest ports on the West Coast, high concentrations of of local air pollution. That's a powerful image, the idea that, you know, an idling bus, someone could actually, you know, visualize, capture and present what how much uh, pollution is being generated by an idling bus or another source of pollution. You know, it's well established that low-income communities, often near freeways like West Oakland and Long Beach and elsewhere, have dirty air. So in one sense, you know, it sounds like you're data is kind of providing more proof of what we already know, that that low-income communities of color have terrible air. We do know that. um, And that's largely because of historical redlining practices, right? Where, you know, in the United States, because of land use practices that were fundamentally racist, communities of color got relegated to very uh, extreme proximity to major sources of emissions, whether it's freeways or whether it's uh, uh, ports or factories or energy production uh, from with fossil fuels. And so in West Oakland, for example, a lot of people aren't aware that the 580 and the 880 are segregated, that the part of the freeway that's going through, you know, the community of color, that's where all the diesel trucks are allowed to go. The freeway that is going through uh, white, more affluent communities, diesel trucks are actually not allowed. It's illegal to drive through that freeway corridor. And so what ends up happening is you get this disproportionate burden. 
Now, communities have been speaking to this issue forever. I mean, you can look at the health outcomes, whether it's asthma or, you know, other kinds of uh, disease that is associated with with uh, pollution. I think what our data is doing is really giving those those uh, uh, issues color. They're quantifiable. You know, we can now hold, create a framework for accountability that can say, if I'm going to invest, you know, as a, as if, if investment is going to come into my community, I want to make sure that it's going to the highest impact use. And that block by block measurement is critical because one of the things that we've discovered through our work with West Oakland and now a lot of follow on scientific work that we've done, including with the US EPA, is that pollution is truly hyperlocal. It varies by 800% from one block to the next. But because pollution is so hyperlocal, you can't actually understand those specific sources and specific impacts unless you have the data to then see, am I having an impact, right? I mean, we can see, for example, you know, not just idling trucks, but we can see precisely where are all the natural gas leaks, precisely where is methane emitting from, you know, a facility where the community has been plagued with odor issues. Um, and we can actually go and measure that and say, okay, this is an area that needs investment. And so that is that is critical to actually shape investment, which at the end of the day is what we need to do to really restore an equitable situation where we all have access to clean air. Well, it's clear that you're filling a data gap. The federal government hasn't made the investment in these technologies. There's probably not a real for-profit business case for companies to develop this technology on their own to generate a revenue stream. So, you know, how are you funded and are you a public benefit corporation, nonprofit? You know, who who saw the need to kind of put the money into this, this gap between the private market and what the federal government has invested in? Yeah, so we are a private sector company, and we are a uh, we're for profit, but we are public benefit in that we're not singularly for profit. You know, as a corporation, you know, we take our obligation to society and our stakeholders very seriously. But actually, we think that in the same way that you have to measure what you manage if you're a business and look at the bottom line and make sure that you know you are you are managing costs and revenues and ins and flows, ins and outs. That when it comes to climate change, that's the fundamental problem, Greg, that we haven't integrated these costs into our decision making across the board. And so we had a different idea. We said, actually, in order to start incorporating these issues and impacts on society into how we measure performance across the board, we need data that measures and tells us what are those emissions. We talk about global CO2 levels. We talk about global methane levels. Well, there's just a few stations that are taking those measurements. But when it comes to actually changing the game and changing you know, the state of affairs with climate change, we need to think about climate data and emissions measurement as importantly and as significantly as we think about financial performance and financial data, because it's not just about financial performances. Actually, are we actually collectively, as an economy, ensuring a livable planet? The answer today, right now, is no. And so how do we really create shared accountability here to improve conditions for everybody? And my argument is that a breathable layer of air is actually foundational to a functional economy. Yeah, a human right, perhaps even. And yeah, yes. there's a whole economy uh, burgeoning around carbon accounting and, and measuring, et cetera. Um, you know, so I'm thinking about your cars driving around and detecting all sorts of pollution and levels that hasn't been detected before uh, by the more centralized EPA collection models. And that could 
be pretty uncomfortable for factories, refineries, industrial sources of pollution who suddenly feel visible um, and think that you might be able to help them by saying, hey, you're leaking methane. But what's been the real reaction by going to sources and say, hey, you know, did you know you're leaking this much? I understand why you would why people would have that perception, right, that industry would be pushing back. And that was, frankly, one of my biggest concerns as we were scaling up our data collection concerns that, you know, we would have a lot of pushback because we are providing unprecedented transparency and we're doing it at a level of scientific accuracy that hasn't been done before. So we have a cooperative research and development agreement with the United States EPA you know, in order for us to be adopted by these regulatory customers at the state level, at the local level, you know, you have to pass a very high bar of scientific rigor. What's happened, though, and I think you're, you know, we're all seeing this, is that there is a ton of pressure either from a regulatory perspective or from shareholders or from just basic license to operate that we are no longer in a reality where it's just okay to emit these these pollutants and to do it in a way that is harming people or you know harming um, uh, communities but also in many instances is actually undermining performance if I'm an, a gas company and I'm emitting methane which today look at the current you know global uh, energy market every single iota of gas that I'm losing that's wasted product that is really hard to replace right now because of all of those supply chain issues. And so I think there's been a real shift in the marketplace and in the private sector. And frankly, the private sector is quickly becoming uh, one of our larger customers because they are being really held accountable to improving emissions, uh, reducing emissions, and our community partners are playing a big role in that. Has there been an enforcement action based on your data? Has any air quality board gone into a particular uh, industrial facility and said, look, we got this data, you know, you need to clean up your act? We're letting the regulators tell those stories and they're going to, they will be ready to tell (laughs) those stories soon. But what I'll say about our data is that Imagine that you could put on x-ray glasses, right? Look out at the look out your window and suddenly be able to understand where all of these emissions are coming from. Well, when you have those x-ray glasses on, that tells me if I'm a regulator where to go and look, right? And before our customers were doing this work in the blind based on complaints and they have very limited resources. I mean, if you look at the scale of emissions and pollution, there's a lot to do to catch up, right, with the scale of the problem. And so if we can more efficiently tell them where to go look, or if I'm a gas company, where to go fix a leak, you can respond much more quickly, you can respond, you can reduce those total emissions and take action to actually fix the issue. And it's not always enforcement, right? We also, you know, our data also directs investment. I'll go back to the example of West Oakland, where our data helped target incentives to improve equipment that was emitting pollution and that needed modernization in in order to really uh, reduce total emissions. And sometimes I have to say, we find really crazy things that you would not expect. Um, You know, the size of some of the leaks that we see, for example, is kind of staggering. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about mapping air quality and emissions. Coming up, a local activist explains her work tracking emissions in a region dominated by oil and gas extraction. If someone happens to be out hiking or riding their horses and they smell like a rotten egg order in the air, who do they tell? Who do they report it to? 
And that's what I'm here for. That's up next when Climate One continues. Let's get back to my conversation with Davida Herzl, co-founder and CEO of Aklama, which is mapping hyper-local air quality. Recently, an EPA advisory board criticized the agency for not using satellite air data to track local emissions. I asked Herzl how much of Aklama's data is available and thus actionable to regulators and the general public. It took years for us to figure this out. Um, because the regulators want to make sure that as they're taking action with the data, that they really understand, you know, the rigor behind it. And so there was a long process for us in going through that evaluation and rigor. But we are. We're, we're now making that information and the maps uh, publicly available, and we'll be doing a lot more. So working to make uh, that data really accessible and usable for the non-scientific kind of members of, of, of the public. And that's going to be very important information for, for really gauging, you know, uh, potential long-term impacts of being exposed to those pollution hotspots um, and really understanding, you know, those persistent levels of pollution over time. Elsewhere in this episode, we talk with Gavin McCormick of Climate Trace, which is mapping carbon emissions and methane on a global scale. How do you see your two approaches working together to bring emissions in check? One is very hyper-local and his is kind of, you know, global macro. You know, the way we see it is that all of these different approaches to measuring and understanding emissions are critical. We need we need all resolutions of data. We need all resolutions of understanding we're really filling a, a critical gap because in the absence of measurement at the local level, what's been done is the development of these tables where you sort of, you know, map the kind of emission with a with emission source with the typical sort of emissions that may come off of that. They literally go and, you know, test an engine to see how much a specific engine may uh, uh, emit. And then they develop these factors that you apply to entire sectors of the economy. But those models have not been ground truth with hyperlocal measurement. And so we see our role as a source of ground truth to really improve our understanding of those emissions at scale and ultimately improve um, the models and, and how we can actually you know, forecast much more accurately. The work that he's doing is incredible. He's providing a global view and doing it at a more sectoral um, and also a level and also looking at the largest emitters. We're really, Akuma, where we differ is that we're just very, very focused on on that human intersection, like where are the sources relative to where people are experiencing those sources? And it's just a different view of a, of a massive problem uh, that needs to be better quantified across the board. You know, as we make this energy transition from fossil fuels to renewables, it's about one source of power, electrical power. It's also about other forms of power, human power, political power. How does your data shift power? Mm. Fundamentally, I think you know, one of the major motivators for doing what we do. We truly believe that, you know, air, the climate we live and breathe in is the fundamental ingredient, one of the fundamental ingredients for life. It's the one, you know, thing that we all have in common. You know, every few seconds, we all take in a breath of the same air. And we should have much more agency in that and much more power to influence the long-term health of our environment that we depend on Transparency changes that formula. Transparency changes that equation, the equation of power, to actually be able to create 
a much more informed public, to give companies that you know want to do the right thing the information needed to step up and actually do what they need to do for regulators to write the rules, for policymakers to write the rules that ensure that we all uh, get to experience that right to clean air. And so I think fundamentally that is the role of transparency. That is what we're what we're here to do is to is to ultimately translate all of this data into a more just and uh, and cleaner and fairer world. Davida Herzl is CEO and co-founder of Aclima. Davida, thanks for sharing your story of transparency and empowerment and innovation. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Greg. Whereas Aclima uses cars and computers to gather emissions data in urban environments, others are out on the ground in rural areas tracking similar air pollutants. Kendra Pinto is a Diné activist in New Mexico. In her role as Indigenous community field advocate with Earthworks, she collects air quality data and advocates for clean air and water in the greater Chaco Canyon region. She spoke with Climate One's Ariana Brocious. The Four Corners region contains significant oil and gas development on federal and tribal lands. So give us a sense of what it feels like as a resident of the Navajo Nation in western New Mexico. Growing up in this area, it wasn't anything that I really paid attention to. Like I knew some of my family was working in the gas fields, but it wasn't something that I considered dangerous or toxic. Um, it wasn't until my sort of early adulthood when I considered how dangerous all of this can be. This land has mostly been untouched around my home. But within the past 10 years, it has completely changed. And so there's a lot of not just physical, but there's mental aspects that are included among this um, struggle within the checkerboard area that I'm in. Um, back in July 2016, we actually did have an explosion happen about five miles west of where I live. And so, you know, at the time it was sort of a, well, maybe or what if but now we say, when will it happen again? Because these well sites are multiplying everywhere around me. Gosh, that has to be scary to have an explosion happen so close to you. Did anybody get hurt? There was um, a brief investigation on that explosion. I never got a full report. I mean, I didn't live in the immediate zone, but there were 55 residents that were evacuated within that area. And the, the fire burned for five days because that was deemed the safest route possible. That's horrendous. Just imagine all of those toxins that were off-gassing and burning, and the people in this area were breathing it for almost a week, and there was nothing we could do about it. Yeah, that does really paint a picture of what it is like to live in such an active oil and gas region. So your work as a thermographer with Earthworks involves using this camera, specialized camera that helps you visualize emissions. Can you give us a sense of what a typical field day is like when you go out with your camera equipment? So this camera has a special filter inside that basically makes them visible visible, but the gases that we are looking at um, are hydrocarbons. And so one of the main um, gases that we focus on at Earthworks is methane. We can spot it with the camera because it's the camera's based on how the hydrocarbons absorb infrared energy. And so it creates this visual picture. 
And whenever I go out into the oil and gas sites, um, I focus on oil and gas wells that are located um, in and near residential areas. I'm able to go up to the outer edges of the oil and gas sites and sort of scan the site with the camera. If I do find emissions that are sort of pouring or venting out of either like the thief hatch or flare stacks on compressors, I will record a short video and send these videos to the New Mexico Environmental Department under a environmental complaint form. And so this basically gives the uh, agency and the operators direct uh, evidence that this is happening, like emissions are const not constantly, some of them are intermittent, but emissions are happening out in this area. Once you've submitted it to the New Mexico Environmental Department, what happens then to the data or <laughs> uh, on their side of things after you've shared these videos? Well, at Earthworks, we keep a running log. So we're better oriented, but also this is technically sort of a paper trap. You know, it's creating this uh, log of uh, emissions that are happening that aren't found by inspectors. And when we get these complaints, um, they, they definitely serve as a tool for the community here. Um, one of the biggest challenges with living with oil and gas, in my area at least, is that when they do happen, if I if someone happens to be out hiking or riding their horses and they smell like a rotten egg order in the air, who do they tell? Who do they report it to? And that's what I'm here for is I want to be able to tell people, well, you know, if you smell something suspicious in the air or you see some kind of liquid that's black or brown running off a tank, you know, you get a hold of so-and-so. There's not a lot of educational tools that are available for locals to report those kind of events that are happening around them, even though they're dealing with them. If the state agency wants to sort of verify the findings that you and others are reporting, have they done that? Do they take your imagery and then go in and check up on those sites and let you know if, if in fact it's a problem that needs solving or um, what happens? The agency that I file these complaints with um, rarely contact me afterwards. I've only ever had one successful complaint followed through with, and that was back in July of 2019. I reported a unlit flare stack as a community member, not as an earthwork staffer. And I think that might have made a slight difference, but I wouldn't say that could happen every time. <laughs> When I did report this event, it was about a mile near my area, and I actually did get a call back, but it wasn't from the agency that I reported to. Um, it was actually a phone call from the Oil Conservation Division, and the OCDN staff was on site to check out the complaint that I submitted. So... I understand that a lot of the communities you prioritize are rural and also indigenous, and that that's a big focus of your work, residential communities that are amidst these oil and gas fields. Why is that important? I think it's important because it's been missing for hundreds of years. I mean, how well are we listening? How often 
Are we listening to folks who are dealing with direct impacts of extraction? A lot of the time when we talk about oil and gas or uranium or coal, a lot of the talk is about the industry or the companies itself that are sort of propelling the country to a number one stop in energy development around the world. But who are they stomping on in order to be number one in the world? It's the little folks, the little people that are dealing with toxic air and contaminated water. And it's super important that also sort of these nonprofit organizations or any organization should be listening to indigenous folks because we have been here for a millennia and we didn't destroy the land like we have been doing in the past couple of hundred couple hundred hundreds of years. So I want to be here to be able to help those who are willing to put up that kind of public fight. Yeah. And there's a proposal I'd like to just mention here. In November 2021, Interior Secretary Deb Holland announced that the Biden administration was thinking about a 20-year drilling moratorium on new federal oil and gas leasing within a roughly 10-mile radius around Chaco Canyon National Historical Park, which is in the area, part of the area where you are. But critics point out that that ban wouldn't do anything to stop the existing leases within that zone or just outside of it. And according to the BLM, about 90 percent of their lands within that area are already leased. So I'm curious what your opinion is on this proposal from Deb Holland, if you think it would have any impact. Even if we stop permitting new leases, that's not going to stop the toxic pollutions from the existing infrastructure that's already there. Well sites that are from the early 90s, there's sites that are even older than that, that are decrepit and rotting, and they have no operator managing it. So these are abandoned and orphan wells, and those type of things exist in my area. And I do think it has a lot to do because with my location and the fact that this is an indigenous community. And so creating a 10-mile buffer around the boundaries of the park is not enough. I will say that now, it's not enough. And what solutions do you think there are then to make some changes short term? I think one way would be providing public resources for folks who are dealing with the impacts. I mean, in my area, I don't have a hospital, no fire station, no police station, which is kind of odd when you think about how much money, how much funding goes to the state from my area. Back in 2019, they made like over $20 million off the land that's near me. But what do I have in my area to show for it except pollution and metal barrels? So maybe diverting some of the money back into the community, investing more locally. Mm -hmm. So the communities have the ability to make their own decisions about what they want to do with their home. That's not happening every day. And even with the public scoping that the Bureau of Land Management does with the Bureau of Indian Affairs, that's not enough. And it's super late. I think they started having their joint public scoping meetings in like 2018. That was right around the corner. How long has oil and gas and other minerals been extracted from this country? And from indigenous lands. But yeah, let's all remember that this is all stolen land. So this is all indigenous lands. Right. I guess I'm wondering if you think having these new tools can 
turn into action, basically. If, if measuring the emissions is a method of getting more enforcement, more regulation, uh, and a way to sort of track and improve the air quality. We can talk about rules and regulations for the industry all we want. Um, but the cold hard truth is these rules and regulations don't mean squat if they're not enforced by the appropriate agency. And why is that difficult in your region? Because of our ruralness. Some of us call this no man's land. Um, some of us call this the desert. Some of us call it the middle of nowhere. Um, but the closest grocery store is about 50 miles away. We're nestled in the middle of the mesas. And because we're so spread out, and also the Navajo Nation is so large, I think that leads to a lot of limited enforcement with my, within my area. Um, and also the fact that there's not enough funding for New Mexico Environmental Department to increase their amount of inspectors. And if they did that, if they increased the amount of inspectors, maybe they could get to the well sites that are in the rural area where I am. But I don't know. Sometimes I feel like that's setting the bar pretty high. <laughs> well, as we wrap up here, Kendra, if you were to communicate one message from the work that you've been doing in the last few years to people who, who don't live in a region that's so saturated with oil and gas production, what would that be? I think one of the message is about folks who do, who aren't familiar with the oil and gas um, within indigenous communities is that not everyone is benefiting with royalties. Um, that's a huge misconception that happens. Like, I don't receive any oil royalties, but I'm pretty sure folks out there think I do just because I live in this area uh, or just because I'm Diné. I don't know. <laughs> um, but I think the biggest message is there's no need for this outside help to come in and try to save us. These folks should be asking us what we would like and what we need done. Um, that often does not happen within my area. Um, we do ask for support, but the support needs to be flexible with Indigenous ways of life. Kendra Pinto is Four Corners Indigenous Community Field Advocate with Earthworks. Thank you, Kendra, so much for joining us on Climate One. Thank you for having me. You're listening to a conversation about monitoring air quality. Since we talked with Kendra Pinto, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency released an updated proposal to its draft methane regulations that would empower third parties to identify large leaks and require oil and gas operators to investigate and fix problems quickly. Coming up, we hear about a coalition tracking emissions data collected from space. I'm seeing really a large number of cases where there's a concrete, simple action you could take that would reduce a lot of emissions without anybody having to lose their fortune or anything like that. And, and I'm becoming much more hopeful that we have underestimated how easy it is to make progress on climate change. That's up next when Climate One continues. Mapping neighborhood level emissions and regional air quality is one end of the spectrum. On the other end, more and more entities are working to gather emissions data on the global scale using satellites. Gavin McCormick is one of 10 founding members of Climate Trace, 
a coalition of tech companies, non-governmental organizations, and universities working together to combine satellite imagery and artificial intelligence to make greenhouse gas emissions transparent. I spoke with him about their most recent data set released during the COP27 Climate Summit in Egypt. The big thing that we've done is we've been able to move from measuring the emissions of entire countries to the largest 72,000 sources of individual emissions on the planet. So I think one of the most interesting headlines here is um, we can see who the biggest emitters are. We can see their ownership in a lot of cases. But most intriguingly to me, we can see who is producing cleaner and less clean. So I'm intrigued by stories like which steel mills worldwide are producing uh, cleaner steel than others? Which ships produce less emissions per nautical mile? And we're hoping to accelerate um, what it looks like to get better sort of climate intelligence about the best way to go green. So if I hear you, you're not just about sort of shaming the dirty sources, but you want to sort of uh, celebrate the cleaner ones, the relatively cleaner ones. Yeah, I mean, it's going to grab all the headlines, like who is dirtiest. But um, I think if you talk about how are you really going to fix climate change, naming and shaming is fine. But what really helps is figuring out, okay, what's a viable plan to do better? And one of the things that I'm blown away by, for example, is we are seeing oil fields that are 52 times cleaner per barrel of oil. There's a stunning capability here that allows us with better data to say, all right, what would you have to do differently to go greener, not just um, catch a few uh, heavy polluters? Interesting, because I did note that 1% of facilities measured emit 14% of global emissions. These are some of these mega facilities, often in Asia, Russia, et cetera, where just part of it was just massive scale. So that was part of my question was, some of the biggest emitters might be just because they're really large, but you're measuring relative pollution output. Exactly. And so the first thing we wanted to do was kind of align around countries because we were there at COP. That's what the UN system is designed around. The second thing we wanted to do is to say, okay, let's get concrete about what we are actually talking about. I'm fascinated by stories like in Tunisia, 20% of the country's emissions come from a single facility. So I think it's really good to move to very concrete. Con what are we talking about? What do we take to stop climate change? But as you say, I think the third and most interesting step is to say, who's not bigger just because they are um, causing more uh, economic activity, but um, who is more emissions per unit of something? That really lets us say, how could we do better? And do these facilities know what you know? Has there, what's been the response to putting this data out there? Yeah, it's been interesting. So far, we have had exactly one conversation with a company who disputed some of the emissions numbers. It turned out what was happening is that there were two very nearby facilities that we had thought were one facility. So they had a good point, but the emissions numbers were fundamentally right. Um, so, so far, the conversation with emitters has been pretty straightforward, actually. What I think is so fascinating is the conversation with buyers and governments. So not the folks causing the emissions, but the folks who have a lot of influence and sway about uh, what would you do about them? So I'm intrigued with conversations with steel buyers, with um, cargo owners, with uh, city officials thinking about how they could clean up their cities, these kind of conversations. And will you publicly name or call out? I mean, the data is available. You put it out there, but you don't sort of lift up or curate the data or name particular facilities, because that's the really what you're bringing here is this asset level, facility level data, not like the Permian Basin, which we know is a big oil and gas field. Of course, it's going to be a big emitter, but you're naming the actual locations in there. Will you publicly name them in the future? 
So uh, they're all on the website for anyone to see. Um, so anybody who's interested can go to climatetrace.org and see who do we think the biggest emitters in the world are and how that's evolving over time. But we have kind of a policy. We've, we view ourselves as closer to Wikipedia. Um, we don't want to be in the business of editorializing too much uh, and sort of picking favorites. So um, I, I probably actually won't in future be do much uh, naming names, although I'm sure there are organizations out there that are going to do that with climate trace data. We're a kind of just the facts situation. How about at the country level? You Your report cites Russia, Turkmenistan, U.S. and Middle Eastern countries as areas of concern. The expectation we had going into this project is what we were going to find is there were some countries that were wildly falsifying their emissions numbers to the UN. To my considerable surprise, that's kind of not what we found. Um, and I think it's always interesting when you have a scientific finding that's not what the scientists were expecting. Um, but, but the real thing we found is although there are some areas for concern, the bigger story is not that there are certain countries falsifying, it's certain industries and so I, for example, would have told you before this project that, I don't know, the coal industry and the oil and gas industry, they're both big fossil fuel industries. I'd expect pretty similar behavior. But we've seen a really big spread. The coal companies, they emit a lot, but it's pretty much exactly what they've always said they emitted. Um, but the oil and gas companies worldwide are the big outlier. We are seeing really significant discrepancies between the emissions we see from space of, of many oil fields um, and what had been reported. And what's interesting is seeing that in a lot of different countries. So I think if I'm going to name anything, it's an entire sector. So once again, oil and gas is the villain here. Is that because of the perhaps, you know, coal facilities uh, tend to be sort of one big, really large coal plant, but oil and gas can be many wells, many pipelines, you know, uh, more vast infrastructure. And is it possible that they just don't know what's leaking? It is very possible. So in the defense of the oil and gas industry, it's pretty hard to measure all of the emissions of entire massive pipelines. Something interesting on a technical level is that um, more of the emissions come from leaks in that industry. And so you can have the situation that a single leak, if it's happening in a really large pipeline, um, even in the middle of nowhere, a very high pressure, can be responsible for an enormous share of your emissions. So I suspect that if they wanted to find these emissions, they could be doing a better job. But we are generally finding that a lot of the emissions in that sector, they come from accidents instead of intentional activity. And in agriculture, I was rather surprised to see most of the top 100 emitters are rice fields, predominantly in Asia. And I'd been covering climate for a long time and didn't realize rice was such a dominant emitter in the agricultural sector. What surprised yeah. you in the data? I didn't realize that either. So this has been an education for me. I'm originally an electricity expert. And in learning how emissions and other activities work, I didn't know that rice was so different than other crops. And I also didn't know in agriculture that so many of the emissions come from unnecessary fertilizer use. There's just sort of a common pattern of overdoing it, which of course brings me hope because um, it's not like people are going to stop eating rice. There's not a lot you can do about that. But um, totally unnecessary fertilization that we can spot from space and say, hey, you could do better. That's extremely actionable. So how do you think these new findings should impact international climate action, bringing this new level of transparency? One of the most interesting things um, that we've been hearing is from a lot of environment ministers um, at the country level or the city equivalent, I guess it would be a sustainability uh, manager at a city. They sort of had a vague sense that it was important to reduce emissions. But when you're trying to justify that to the treasury ministry in your country, the difference between, hey, we really have clear data on it's exactly what's going on. We, we have a plan for how to verify it if it gets reduced. We can tell you in concrete terms exactly what facilities need to do what. The difference between that and ah, somebody should do something, it's like night and day. 
So I think the big potential here is to essentially line up what are the biggest sources of emissions, not knock down all of them, because some of those are really important for crucial economic activities, and it could be a long time, but sort of say, what are all the big sources that'd be pretty easy to do something about? And of all the conversations we've had, um, the two fastest moving, I think, are in the city space and in the corporate sector, where we often find there is a big will to do something, but people don't have infinite resources. And if you can really say, right, for you in your city, these emitting assets are the priority. For you in your city, it's a completely different um, to-do list. Um, we are seeing a lot of interest in essentially getting more bang for the buck out of your dollars that you want to invest in fighting climate change. Um, so I think a lot of the story is about leverage. And, and targeting resources and giving data to cities that may not have the capacity to... Uh to do that, you know, as of uh, last fall, no country had submitted a complete accounting of its emissions to the UN Climate Change Agency. It seems your work could force their hand and also check their math, which I guess you're saying is that their their math, their self-reporting of numbers by countries to the UN seems to be accurate. Um, so how is this going to enhance that process? So I should sort of be precise and say, um, we had an expectation going in that was going on was that countries were reporting information and it was not true. By and large, that is not what we have found. But what we have found is there's a lot of missing information. So um, there are plenty of countries that it's been 20 years since they reported anything. Now that's one thing if like, oh, data is old, but think about that means that anything anyone has done in that country under the Paris Agreement, it's less than 20 years old. We have no record of that. And so um, if a country doesn't have any information, um, I think there's a tremendous amount of value in providing um, independent information. And um, that's sort of a different use case than we were expecting, because uh, although I think it's very valuable to ensure that everybody stays honest, as a general rule, the problem we're seeing is like failure to report not reporting untrue information. Huh, it's nice to know that countries aren't fudging, uh, fudging their homework. At last year's UN Climate Summit in Glasgow, more than 100 countries signed the methane pledge, yeah. promising to reduce methane emissions globally by 30% from 2020 level. Supporters of methane, also known as natural gas, say it burns cleaner than coal, but it can be worse than gas if small amounts leak, as we've been talking about. So how does your work connect to the methane pledge? So one thing is we were just talking about how until now, countries have largely been honest with each other. And I think that that has tremendous potential for underlying the trust that is what makes negotiations work. But I think the pressure is going to increase to falsify data. So if you think about a lot of these binding pledges, they're just now starting to have teeth. And the global methane pledge is a huge example of that. It's going to start to be more tempting to kind of stray off that path. And so we think getting ahead of the system and making sure that there's honest, independent monitoring kind of from day one. So everybody making these pledges knows all along, like, don't even bother trying to fake it because uh, everybody's going to see. I think now that the pledges are there and we are in this amazing place, the countries have all committed to doing the right thing. Um, I think just sort of keeping everybody on that path is, is just fundamental to the climate fight at this point, particularly in methane, where so often it is accidents and things that would be so easy to sweep under the rug if no one's looking. Right. That's an interesting point that the stakes are going to increase and there's going to be more penalties, uh, more incentives to uh, to cut corners or, or fudge numbers. So explain how the combination of satellites and artificial intelligence is allowing projects like Climate Trace to gather and synthesize data. And how has that shifted your own understanding of emissions? 
So what brought me to this project is I was working on power plants in the United States, and we had some technology that can reduce emissions automatically. Um, but we can only do it because the U.S. does such a good job of publicly and transparently monitoring its power plant emissions. Every hour, every power plant in the United States um, has a public reporting of its emissions. There's nothing like that in the world, anywhere else. I had always assumed that in every sector, in every country in the fight against climate change, um, everybody had access to good data. Um, and the more I've learned on this project, uh, it's not the case in most places that you can monitor things on site. It's too expensive. And it's not the case that uh, you can monitor it easily from the sky because if you see a bunch of CO2 near a power plant, it's very common that it didn't come from that power plant. We forget that 90% of CO2 emissions still come from nature, and there's wind and all of that stuff. And so it's actually very difficult by just looking at CO2 to be totally sure of where everything is coming from. So the big innovation here is you layer in machine learning. And what machine learning can do is it can, it can match up against all of the stuff we really know for sure. But it can bring in additional signals that give us further clues. My favorite example is a power plant, when it's producing a bunch of steam, uh, that is extremely highly correlated with it's turned on and causing emissions. Okay, this year, how often was this power plant turned on? Um, when you see a factory farm um, seeing the cattle from space, it doesn't tell you exactly how much methane they emitted, but it gives you a really good sense. And so what machine learning can do is bring in all of the other stuff we can see from space in the internet and true it up to what the CO2 emissions and the methane emission sensors are seeing to get a way more detailed, accurate picture. People involved in direct measurement say this type of modeling is not accurate and could be challenged by polluters. What's your response yeah. to that? I think the definition of accuracy in science is uh, when you have an accurate measurement, um, you compare it and you see if they match. So uh, the way machine learning or LLM works is it's got a measurement of accuracy there. Um, and it, it would be very unscientific to say because of the method you used, it is accurate or not. The right way to do it would be to look at the data and see how accurate is it in practice. And so I'll, I'll agree that some of our current, it's not like everything in climate trace is perfect now, but I would really disagree with the idea that the method you use is the right way to measure accuracy in science. I think it's the match with the actual ground truth data that you can see. Um, and that's why we're making all that public so that you can see for yourself where our algorithms more and less accurate and where there's more uncertainty. California has a law that's requiring measuring, say, uh, you know, factory farms, methane emissions from dairy and, and uh, feedlots. So could a regulatory body so use your data to, to actually look at a particular factory farm and use that uh, for compliance purposes? Is that is that happening? Do you envision that happening where regulators could actually use this for compliance? Yeah, we're just trying to talk to regulators now. Um, because we do take accuracy so seriously, I would say it's pretty early days for Climate Trace. So I think it's useful now for any big picture rules. Like um, there are some laws uh, that you cannot emit more than X. And if we say you're 10 times more than X, like, okay, obviously it's, it's happening. But I would be a little bit hesitant to use the current version of Climate Trace for any like really the details matter legal enforcement situations. But AI is improving every year, you know, check back next year and it might be different. It will, we'll get there in the end. Right. Or you might point regulators where to look, right? Um, mm -hmm. um, why is real-time monitoring critical for this? So um, my career began in uh, electricity emissions. And so a good example of why real-time matters in electricity, if you have a power grid um, that is uh, charging up an electric vehicle, and at one time that power grid is mostly producing coal, uh, and another time that power grid is mostly solar, the real world consequence of charging that vehicle, they're wildly different emissions numbers. 
And so by synchronizing electric vehicles, smart thermostats, batteries to when the power grid is cleaner, you can reduce a lot of emissions in in a way that um, kind of doesn't cost anything. And so I think uh, literally real time is only useful in those applications where you can you can turn you can pull a lever and do something with it. But also consider that the state of the art in a lot of countries is it's been seven years, in some cases twenty years since we had a look at all. So something not quite literally real time, but at least up to date. It's very useful for policymakers who want to know if a law worked. So I had missed how often cities and states and countries are experimenting with new strategies. And if you have to wait 20 years to find out a strategy worked, you will know so much less than if you're getting continuous real-time feedback. And this is how corporations uh, manage. Uh, you can't measure, you can't measure. And we're basically trying to bring that to emissions too. So what kind of action do you hope will occur by shining a light on individual industrial facilities? Like you said earlier, it's kind of encouraging the, the or celebrating the clean and efficient ones. What else do you hope will happen as a result of this new level of global transparency? So one use case we've seen a lot of is a policymaker who is trying to reduce emissions in their city or state who literally didn't know what the biggest source of emissions in their area was. So think about how you would prioritize, should you be investing in electric vehicles or in forestry if you don't even know which of those is the biggest deal in your region? Um, so we think that just sort of saying, hey, here's where the emissions is coming from is one big part. Another big part we've seen is a lot of climate uh, efforts fail. If you think about how many dollars have been spent on carbon offsets, and we often say like, ah, those didn't really work. Well, let's flip it in reverse. What if they did all work? Uh, and so I am really hopeful that we can support carbon markets um, and policies in saying, all right, we, had, we invested in reducing emissions. Did we see that yield? And can we hold people accountable for making sure that money is all actually achieving something? Be a lot of extra emissions reductions. And the last thing is just trust um, in the Paris Agreement. I know it's not an amazing headline that we didn't see um, as much lying and cheating as people thought. But that actually is enormously good news for climate negotiators realizing they should be trusting each other more than they thought. Yeah, that is encouraging that uh, the self-reporting is is more accurate than you than you expected. Um, so, how has working on this project affected your own personal hopes and fears and expectations for our shared climate future? You know, it's interesting. It's pretty stunning for an environmental activist to say that they're calming down, but um, I have just been stunned by how much good news I see in the data. Can you, you know, say can we, you say that again, yeah, please? <laughs> yeah. I have been stunned by how well we are doing as a species. Nobody talks about this part. So um, one of my favorite analyses, for example, is I looked at how much our country's uh, emissions increasing each year. And what I'm seeing in the climate trace data is that the rate of increase is shrinking so fast, we are getting real close to flatlining here. And I'm seeing that it's happening in every industry in every country. We aren't seeing a story uh, that some people had believed that it's only the global north reducing emissions or something like this. Um, and I'm seeing really a large number of cases where there's a concrete, simple action you could take that would reduce a lot of emissions without anybody having to um, lose their fortune or anything like that. And, and I'm becoming much more hopeful that we, um, we have underestimated how easy it is to make progress on climate change. I know that's not a common opinion, but I think people are going to start seeing that in the data when they actually look at the real numbers. I'm going to replay that on a loop. And when I need a little pick-me-up, I'm going to replay those words along with David Wallace-Wells saying the worst case scenarios are less likely that we are making progress. We need to acknowledge and celebrate that rather, rather than get locked in this doom and gloom narrative that uh, has prevailed in recent decades. 
and it's bad, but I, we're we're seeing more and more hope, frankly, than I'm used to, and I'm just adjusting to what I'm seeing in the data. <laughs> Great. Well, being it, it, it's incredible for you to say that being data driven rather than kind of motivated, wishful thinking driven. It's a lot more credible. Yeah. Gavin McCormick, founder and executive director of Watt Time, and also founding member of Climate Trace. Thank you so much for sharing your data and your authentic optimism today. Thanks so much for having me. On this Climate One, we've been talking about tracking air quality and emissions data at the local and global level. You can find links to the data and reports we discussed in the show notes on our website. Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency. Talking about climate can be awkward, difficult, exciting, and interesting. And it's critical to address the transitions we need to make in all parts of society. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. You can do it right now on your device. You can also help by sending a link to this episode to a friend. By sharing, you can help people have their own deeper climate conversations. Brad Marshland is our senior producer. Our managing director is Jenny Park. Our producers and audio editors are Ariana Brocious and Austin Cologne. Megan Basilia is our production manager. Our team also includes consulting producer Sarah Catherine Coxon. Our theme music was composed by George Young. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.